Hi, everybody, and welcome to this special episode of the Follow Your Dream podcast. I am Robert Miller, your host. We are celebrating two events in this episode. The first one is the launch of my band, Project Grand Slam's new album, The Shakespeare Concert, and also the first anniversary of this Follow Your Dream podcast. The Shakespeare Concert was recorded live in the studio. It features 15 of our greatest hits, and we played them one after another concert style. No overdubs, no fixes, just as is. And the album has been praised by so many famous musicians, including Mark Farner of Grand Funk Railroad, Jim Peterick of the Ides of March, Joey D of Peppermint Twist fame, legendary guitarist Elliot Randall, and celebrated British composer Sarah Class. And the reviewers have called it so many accolades, including perfection, five stars, thrilling, and a masterpiece. Shakespeare concerts available for streaming on Spotify, Apple, and all the other streaming platforms that people listen to these days. And it's also available for purchase as a digital download or as a CD. Just go to thepgsstore.com. Again, that's thepgsstore.com. You know, one year ago, I debuted this podcast with my welcome episode. And at that time, I kind of knew where I wanted to take the show, but the exact path was going to be a work in progress. I knew that I wanted to inspire and motivate others to follow and succeed at their dream, just as I followed my youthful music dream later in life and succeeded. And I wanted to introduce my music to a different and broader audience and establish a deeper connection than I think you can on social media. I also knew that I wanted to have guests on the podcast who had succeeded at their dream in order to inspire people. What I didn't know at that time was how many famous musicians and others would wind up being guests on the show. So join me now. I want to take you through some of the highlights of my first year of the Follow Your Dream podcast. My very first guest on the show was Bruce Morrow, cousin Brucey to the world. To me, he will always be America's number one radio personality since the 1960s. Brucey introduced the Beatles at Shea Stadium. That's all you need to know about him. And I asked him about his famous theme music that was created by the Four Seasons. Here's what he had to say. One of the questions I did want to ask you, you had that fabulous introduction music by the Four Seasons. How did that come about? I have no idea, but all that <laughs> I, I play, I love the Four Seasons. I've always loved the Four Seasons. So Bob Gordio and Frankie Valley called me one day and they said, hey, we want to come up to see you. We have a present for you. I didn't request this. I had no idea. Really? They came up and they said, Brucey, here's a gift for you that you'll always have for the rest of your life. And they handed me a five-inch wheel. In those days, we used to have 
uh, tape recordings. You're probably too young, Robert. You don't remember tape. But, uh, I, I had tape recorders. Don't worry. Yeah, so we had a little tape recorder, and it was a five-inch. And on that tape recording was the recording of uh, Cousin Brucey theme by the Four Seasons. Well, I put it on the air that night, right? And I put it on the air eight times after that. That uh, recording of uh, the Four Seasons doing the Cousin Brucey theme, right? has been with me ever since and will be with me everywhere I go. Anytime I'm, uh, I appear on a station as a guest, it's there, right? It's with me now on WABC. It's been with me for years. So that was a gift that Bob and Frankie gave me. And wow. what a gift that was. What Come a on. gift. I've been so fortunate to have some amazing musician guests on the podcast. Here are just a few. Jim Peterick has written two massive hits in his career. He wrote Vehicle for the Ides of March, which he sang as well. And he wrote Eye of the Tiger for Survivor, which became the theme song for Sylvester Stallone's movie Rocky III. Over 700 million YouTube views of that song. Here's an excerpt from my interview with Jimbo, where he talks about getting that fateful call that he received from Sylvester Stallone. And I thought someone was putting me on. It was on my message machine. And I hear, hey, yo, Jim, that's a nice answering machine you got there. Give me a call, Sylvester Stallone. And I go, yeah, right. You know, thought someone was putting me on. And my wife heard it, uh, that same girl, Karen. And uh, she said, you know, you better call him back just on the off chance that's really Stallone. So I called him back very tentatively. And I go, this is Jim Peter. Is this really Sylvester Stallone? He goes, Hey, Jimbo, call me Sly. You know. <laughs> okay, kid from Berwyn, I'm calling my hero Sly, right? So we start talking, and he said, look, I, Tony Scotty played me uh, your premonition album. That's the sound I want for my new movie. I, I mean, going to fly now, that's a nice song, but I want something for the kids, something with a pulse. Can you help me out? I said, absolutely. And uh, he sent us the rough cut of the movie, I rented a Betamax Pro, set it on the kitchen table, invited Frankie Sullivan, the guitar player of Survivor, and we watched that that uh, movie. And, and actually, in the first three minutes, we kind of got the the feel of it. And I had my uh, Les Paul around my neck, and it just started going, you know, like that. And I see the punches throwing, and I start going. But that's all we had. <laughs> Stallone, I said, we got the intro, but you got to send us the whole movie, not just the first three minutes. And he's like, well, we can't do it. You know, the movie company. I said, you got to do it. Oh, you got to send it right back. Okay, got it. So the next morning, FedEx arrives again. And this time we see the whole storyline. And when Mickey, the trainer, starts going, Rocky, you're losing the eye of the tiger. Eye of the tiger. There's our title. One of my favorite bands, while I was coming of age musically in the 60s and the 70s, was Grand Funk Railroad. And I had the pleasure to interview Mark Farner, the original lead guitarist and frontman for that great band. Here's a little vignette where Mark talks about their performance at the 1969 Atlanta Pop Festival, which was their coming out engagement. 
after a lot of turmoil to get there, we showed up, went up on that stage, opening act, it was 12 noon, 110 degrees in the shade, brother. And when we kicked it off, it was like that crowd, we got their attention, man. They loved us, they mm. loved the music. We did all our first album that day. Plus for an encore, we did Land of a Thousand Dances, Wilson <laughs> Pickett style. And I took my guitar off and I was dancing all over that stage, man. I was, you know, I was really getting into it and the crowd was loving it. And I had bought this $50 Paisley print shirt that you could see through it, you know, but they had this Paisley print on it. And this thing was sticking to me, dude. It was like, I was sweating so profusely and this shirt was just hindering my movement. So what I did, I ripped this $50 shirt off and that was a lot of money back then, brother. You bet. You know, I ripped that shirt off and the audience just came up like, holy, <laughs> that was great. John Lodge is the longtime bassist and composer for the Moody Blues. I asked him if he was surprised that their music has lasted for more than 50 years. And here's what he had to say. Well, I remember when I said to my friends when I was uh, 19, this is what I wanted to do. And they said, what are you going to do when you're 21? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. I think there's a famous quote from Ringo Starr, who was asked what he was going to do when the Beatles faded away. And I think he was going to open up some kind of a, a hair salon or something <laughs> like that. I wonder how he's doing with that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I remember when we when we started just before Data Future Pass, we the five of us said, "What do we want to achieve?" And not a dream, not a dream, no hypotheticals. What do we want to achieve? And we said, it would be fantastic if the songs we wrote now lasted 20 years, you know? And here we are 50 odd years later. Joey D was the creator of the Peppermint Twist, a song that helped to define the whole twist craze of the early 1960s. And you know, it became an international hit. In my interview with Joey, he talks about some of the famous musicians that he hired for his backing band, the Starlighters, including a then unknown guitarist named Maurice James, who later changed his name to Jimi Hendrix. And I said, I need a guitar player, Jimmy. He said, you know what? I just heard of this dude that's in New York City right now. He just got off the road with the Isley Brothers and Little Richard. I said, he's got to be the goods. He's got to be the real deal. So I was living in Lodi, New Jersey at the time. And I said, Jimmy, I'll have my uh, nephew, Johnny, and you drive to the city, pick him up and bring him to my house in Lodi and I'll, I'll audition him. This happens. They pick up Jimmy at this St. James Hotel, which is on 45th Street, a real roach rat infested dive. <laughs> but that's what we had to contend with back yep, then. Yep. Everybody was trying to make it. And you had to put up with this. So he comes uh, to my house. He didn't even have a case for his guitar. He had a bandana around his head, a real cool dude. And um, he comes into the house. I welcomed him. I said, uh, what's your name? He said, Maurice James. 
I said, uh, welcome to my home. I said, uh, we'll go in my garage now. He had a little amplifier, must have been 12 by 12 by 12, a real tiny one. Yeah. And plugged his guitar in it. It was a jazz master Fender at the time. And he said, what would you like me to play? And I said, no, just the opposite. I want you to play what you like. So he started playing Curtis Mayfield, and I'm an R&B guy. Uh -huh. So once he, I started hearing that, I said, oh, man, that's fantastic. I said, you got the gig. And Sarah Class, the celebrated British composer, told the story about Prince Charles contacting her after she had written to him volunteering to create music for his charitable project. Here's what happened next. Then I sent it to him. He really loved it. Did he know your music before you had gotten in touch with him? I, d I don't know. I don't think so, but who knows? I mean, think about it. It's amazing. He opens the envelope. You've got a few CDs in there. It actually gets to him, okay, because you, you've probably got 10 gatekeepers before anything gets to him. And then he must have listened to it, too. That's fantastic. He must have listened to it. I know. I, it, it is amazing. I just think it was a um, just a most beautiful miracle that that it did get through to him and he listened. Um, and yeah. Did you send the package to the Queen as well? <laughs> no, I haven't done that. Why not? You know, maybe get the rest of the family. <laughs> <laughs> I've had several fascinating corporate executives on the podcast as well. Sarah Kotlova, an ex-advertising executive who's now running a CBD company, totally surprised me with her answer when I asked her what was her childhood dream. Let's hear from her now. Oh, hands down, Egyptologist. Say this again. Egyptologist. In fact, um, if, if you're only audio, but um, I even have a little reminder of my dream on my desk. She's holding an obelisk in her hand. <laughs> I want you to know this. This woman must be really into the whole thing because she's got an obelisk on her desk. She didn't know I was going to ask this question. No, no. Okay. I want to hear about this. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> now, my first dream, absolutely Egyptology. Why? You know, I, so I'm, I'm from Louisville, Kentucky, and I guess it was just the most exciting thing I'd ever seen. <laughs> you, know? Um, you know, just something fascinating out of my experience. You know, just uh, read every book, looked at everything I could get my hands on. I remember my grandparents asking me, I was probably about five or six, you know, I'd done well in some little school thing. And, and they said, what, what can we, you know, what would you like to do to, to reward, you know, to have a reward? And I, I think they were thinking along the lines of go have an ice cream. And I said, <laughs> we should go to Egypt. <laughs> you know, I've asked this question of a lot of people. And I think your answer is now at the top of the list of the most unusual answers that I've gotten back. Gary Ridge is the longtime CEO of the WD-40 company, the maker of maybe the greatest product ever invented. 
WD-40. It fixes anything that's broken or squeaks. And I asked Gary if it's true that they've never filed for patent protection for this product because they didn't want to reveal the secret formula. Here's what he had to say. Absolutely true, Robert, yes. Uh, the secret formula to the multi-use product is a secret formula. So it's, um, it's actually locked, written on a styro notepad in pencil, uh, locked in a vault. <laughs> I've moved it twice in my life. For the 50th anniversary of WD-40, I got dressed in a suit of armor and I got on a horse and I rode into Times Square in New York on a horse in a suit of armor with the formula to open the NASDAQ stock exchange. <laughs> and just recently, on the last few years, uh, we moved our offices. We'd been in the same office in San Diego for 44 years. We moved to another location. So I wanted to put the formula in a bank closer to our new location. So we went in an armored car and I had a briefcase handcuffed to my arm. And we went into the, uh, into the vault and we picked up the formula and I got in the back of an armored car with a police escort and we moved it from one bank to the other. I mean, you got more security around this than the missile codes. <laughs> you know, I've done a few shows involving the Beatles, probably my favorite band of all time. In one, I had on the podcast, David Bedford, a Beatles expert and Liverpool historian. And he gives Beatle tours in that city. Here's an excerpt from that interview where I asked him about Paul McCartney's recent surprise return visit to Liverpool with TV host James Corden. Oh, that everybody has been talking about it as soon as it was on. Because, of course, it was a big thing in Liverpool. Um, somebody had sent me a message the night before. He said, make sure you're around. Something big's going to happen. I don't know what it is, but I know something's happening. And then, of course, then Paul turns up with, with James Corden and I'm getting messages from all over the world. <laughs> Are you there? What's he doing? And I wasn't here. I was in Dublin. So I was not actually in the city. Oh, and dear, and this it, is the, huh? the, sad, <laughs> the sad irony was I was in Dublin about to get onto a cruise ship that would sail into Liverpool the next morning. And I was giving a talk about the Beatles in Liverpool while there was a Beatle in Liverpool. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's how unlucky can you get? Debbie Greenberg saw all 292 performances by the Beatles at the Cavern Club in Liverpool, the little venue where they were discovered by Brian Epstein. Debbie talks about the Beatles' first performance there in 1961. But in 1961, on the 9th of February, uh, the Beatles made their debut at the Cavern and that, that was no going back after that. They were absolutely amazing. Now, you were there for that debut? I was there. They, they just exploded onto the stage. And they were, they were intoxicating, that they, they were exciting, that their energy was palpable. Everything about their music was loud. And they, they were just fantastic. We hadn't seen anything like them before. One of the most downloaded episodes in the first year featured John Lee Dumas, the host of the hit podcast, Entrepreneurs on Fire. Listen here as JLD gives you his philosophy in a nutshell. So stop trying to be a pale wig imitation of others. You're a snowflake. You are unique. You are special. 
and creates the number one best solution to a real specific unique problem that you have passion in and expertise on, and you will win. And my one-year retrospective would not be complete if I didn't include a couple of excerpts about me and my music, because after all, my music is the manifestation of my dream. I was interviewed by Rena Friedman Watts on her podcast, Better Call Daddy. She asked me if there was one moment in particular when I knew that I had made it in music. Here's the response that I gave her. We were invited to play at a festival in Serbia called the Nisville Jazz Festival. And we went on stage. We had barely uh, slept at all. And in the audience, there were 20,000 people. And they had no idea who we were. We were there from the United States. They barely spoke English, probably. But within the span of one hour, we got a standing ovation. We had them in the palm of our hand. When I left the stage, there was a whole line of people waiting to take our photograph, get our autograph, etc. They handed me a DVD of the performance, which became an album of ours, which is called Greetings from Serbia. It was a wonderful experience. It just showed me like we had made it. Last December, I did an episode, which I called a mini tour of my band Project Grand Slam and my music. One of my featured songs in that episode is called Redemption Road. Here's a little bit of that song. So there it is, a retrospective on the Follow Your Dream podcast on the occasion of our first anniversary. We have come a long way since that initial episode. Right now, we are a top-ranked podcast, and we have listeners in 191 countries as of this date, and it's growing all the time. How about that? I want to thank you all for subscribing and for listening. And I want you to please email me with any comments or guest suggestions or anything else that you may have. My email address is robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.